Test, 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 test. Okay. This is the Slow Exposure Podcast, hosted by me, Eliza Edwards, a Berlin-based writer and founder of Slow Exposure, an Instagram account that celebrates emerging talent within the sphere of sustainability. This podcast is a series of conversations with experts from all corners of the fashion industry, designers, activists, CEOs, and more. The idea started last year in London. I brought my microphone with me everywhere I went, pressing the red button when we started our conversations. This series is supported by Vestia Collective, the leading global app for pre-loved fashion. Discover a more sustainable, circular way of buying and selling a wide range of premium designer and luxury pieces from their global community by joining their movement and becoming a fashion activist today. In this first episode, I speak to Cora Hiltz. I sat down with the founder of Rev Envers, the luxury retail platform for sustainable goods, in her home in November 2019. We chatted about prejudices she faces as a businesswoman in the boardroom the lasting influence growing up in Maine has had on her life, and how to determine what makes a brand truly conscious. Just a quick note, there is some light swearing in this episode. Well, I was, I was doing environmental politics and sustainable development as my master's degree here at King's College, and I, so I was already very much embedded within sustainability. I was really absorbing some quite heavy material throughout my weeks. Um, and then I would get to a Friday night and I'd be going for dinner with friends and I'd bring up the topics that we were discussing. So things like climate change and species extinction and deforestation and water shortages and, and these things that I believe to be absolutely the most pressing things facing humanity and bear in mind this was six years ago and I actually think that things have only gotten worse which is slightly depressing um but I mean nobody wanted to talk about those things at dinner or in my kind of day-to-day life and I I understood why because they're not fun things to talk about and it makes you need to question yourself and it makes you need to question your lifestyle and I don't think that human beings are naturally wanting to do that So I was trying desperately to think about some way to connect a wider audience with these really difficult topics um, in a way that would be accessible. And that was sort of where the idea of a sustainable luxury fashion platform came from. I mean, now obviously there are loads of people doing this, but six years ago it was a slightly revolutionary idea. Um, Most people told me I was crazy that, you know, sustainability and luxury would never go hand in hand. Um, I don't think people knew that there was a very urgent need at that time. And I, I just, I just felt it so strongly that we could be consuming better and that was something everybody did and it could be a way to make really positive change so that was it in sort of a nutshell Mm -hmm. yeah and it's something really that I grasped from being in the pop-up shop and being online is that for you guys it's not just about the clothing but also engaging with a different kind of mentality and I think that's one of the reasons that both you and I are sitting here today in how we can make the language surrounding these quite serious issues fun and interesting. Yeah. What were the main challenges you faced in the first year or so of starting Revolver? I would say the main challenges were, I mean, you're like, for the people listening to the podcast, uh, they can't see me, but I w- they can hear me. I was American, living in London. I was 25. I was blonde. 
you know, I, I don't think a lot of people took me seriously in a business capacity at the beginning. There were definitely prejudices against, I would say, the kind of stereotypical woman that I was at that time that made it a little bit harder to get things off the ground. So, you know, I remember going to investment meetings with lots of like old, rich, white guys. I don't think I stood a chance even having walked in the door. And at the time I was with my first two investors in Rev who were both women, one of whom was my co-founder at the time. And, you know, we, we, we all really felt just like we weren't being taken seriously. And I'm like remembering that feeling. I remember what used to piss me off the most was that I would think that the guy sitting across the table from me were the exact people responsible for the mess that the planet had gotten in in the first place. And I remember being so motivated to get them out of power positions and to prove them wrong. I mean, I was literally that, I I remember more than anything fired me up because I was, you know, and it's still to this day the truth, 25 companies in the world are responsible for the majority of the carbon emissions. And most of those companies are owned by older rich white men and from that rather than giving up which a lot of times it seemed like that was just kind of inevitably that this was not going to take off we persevered and now the company is invested solely in by women which I love and um you know and we've come so far so I'm proud that that I'm here Do you think that drive to sit in those meetings when it was really difficult and you were fighting what you felt like was a losing battle, do you think that your roots, because you spoke a little bit earlier about your growing up in the countryside in Maine, do you think that was a fundamental core strength? Yes, I think that growing up in Maine and in nature um, was phenomenally important. I also had parents who... You know, my mother, I remember when we first moved to Maine, um, used to take me out. I was about seven years old. And after dinner, we'd go walk through the grass. And we were lucky enough to live on the ocean. So we'd walk down to the ocean. And she'd have me put my toes in the water. And she would always tell me, you know, remember that this is what in life is important. Like the riches that you might come across in later years or the things in later years that might seem like big, relevant things to you. Like don't ever forget what is grounding and what is real and throughout the roughest times or the most unbelievable times in my life the place that I will go back to to have a sense of like rootedness is is Maine all the things that you amass throughout your life you're not taking them with you when you go so I try to think about that with Rev and that informs everything we do from how I run the company we mentioned the editorials we write and very much influences the buying. We, we don't bring on a ton of brands and we don't do it willy-nilly. I, I so rarely find brands that I think tick all of our sustainability criteria. So it does take a long time for me to do the buying with Rev. You also have to build up a huge amount of trust in order for someone to invest what is actually quite a lot of money for for products. How do you as a platform and as an individual, I guess, as CEO of Rev, how do you how did you build up that trust in the beginning? Was that part of the reason as to why you spent why it takes a lot longer for you guys to to represent a brand, to have a brand on the platform? Definitely. I think like I mean, I made a conscious decision last year that we probably would never work with brands that had major shareholders or weren't independently owned because I just felt like 
and I know now this is such a buzzword, but transparency is such an issue within all levels of, you know, consumer goods. And I've been in these people's homes. Do you know what I mean? Like there's not that level of connection with everybody, but I want to be able to tell people honestly, um, you know, how something might work for them. Specifically if something costs a lot of money, because I'm not expecting people to drop, you know, 40, 40 pounds on a serum if somebody within the Rev team couldn't stand up and say this was effective. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important to look at the 360 degrees of your production. And I don't think that stops just with product. I think that really looks into your packaging, how you're shipping, any other things you're doing as a company as well. What steps do you take as a company to make sure that it's not just the product that's sustainable, but as we were talking about the packaging, the shipping, what kind of measures are you taking to ensure that that's kind of a good practice? If I'm honest, packaging wasn't that hard for us, um, except that we use recycled, recyclable packaging. Our Christmas boxes are all printed with soy inks. We have biodegradable hemp bows. I mean, I don't think sustainable packaging is that hard. We're trying to phase out any kind of plastic from our packaging. Like if you look at the new iPhone 11, I'm like, how the fuck are we not more advanced? Was it like, if, if you can do this with a phone, how have we not evolved pla- past like single-use plastic? Like it's it's a disconnect to me that I actually don't even know. Yeah, it's it's really interesting the plastic thing because we really we have to uninvent it. We have to go back and then work out a different. And route plastic forward. hasn't been around that long. I mean, I think it like we only started really using it in like the nineteen seventies. Yeah. Um, so it's not like we've got to go two hundred years back in time. It's only about fifty years ago. Um, but it is, it's so funny. We talk about this, you know, it's really ironic. I talk about this with my parents because my parents were both mega hippies. And I had a conversation with my father this summer. I'd had a bit of a meltdown to my parents um, because I was home and the Amazon rainforest was burning and I was feeling just horribly depressed about everything. And, you know, I got a little bit pissed at my parents because I was like, you know, you guys eat meat, you drive big diesel car. I mean, you know, classic American what are you doing, you know? And like, why aren't you doing more? And, and to be fair, my, my parents, I mean, they only shop at the farmer's market, even though they're eating meat, it is all locally sourced. So I was having a bit of a go at them. But my father came down the next morning and said, you know, he's like, I, I was thinking about what you said all night long. He was like, I don't know where we went wrong. Because he was like, in the 60s, he's like, I was out protesting Vietnam. I was living in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. I, he's like, I mean, all, all my roommates in Haight-Ashbury were vegan and talking about not eating processed sugar because it was going to give you cancer. And he's like, and this is the 60s and 70s. And he's like, and then sometime in the 80s, we all traded it in for BMWs and Todd shoes. It's almost like we've got to work backwards from this very weird thing because at the core you know yeah like I look at pictures of my mother when she was like a young girl and I mean she had long hair bare feet she owned a pet lamb you know she lived on a farm (laughs) you know and like it's crazy and 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 things just went a bit wonky I I just think it's it's accessibility and it's the speed at which we can we can get things. You know, our challenge and our mission, I guess, um, as people working in this environment, to make that fun and exciting. Yeah, you've spoken about Revolver being a luxury platform. Yeah, was that a kind of conscious decision that you made relatively early on, where you said we're going to work, 
you know, with luxury products. Why was that the decision in the first place? So I think the word luxury here, and and honestly, it's something I talk about with my the women I work with on our communication side of things all the time because we are not selling anyone like twelve thousand dollar, you know exotic fur handbags you know we're not in that level of luxury so arguably we're not really like a luxury luxury retailer but I wanted to put that word there because I wanted to be very honest and open about the fact that sustainable items cost more Mm -hmm. and I didn't want and we still get this this criticism and it's really really fair and I honestly like hands up I don't know what you can say to people who want Rev to cost the same as H&M because it can't. Like, you cannot... I know that all of these places now have conscious collections and, you know, and I would always say that's a great way to go because it's it's making a start and it's voting for a more sustainable part of a big retailer and that's phenomenal. But for me and for what I do with Rev, I think that, you know, I've spoken to our designers and everyone's like, I mean, how you can produce a truly amazing organic you know, fair trade, well-made, locally sourced t-shirt, you know, that it's around, it's upwards of 50 quid. It's, it's really in that area of like 50 to 75 pounds at retail. And I just wanted, you know, because I didn't want to constantly be justifying our price points. I said luxury just because I can't sell anything at Rev for a fiver. I think it's all about as you're saying, it is a risk and it's a criticism that I get a lot. You know, I write about brands and majority of them I can't even afford myself. Why am I promoting something that I can't afford? Personally, when I started Rev, I mean, I was a student. I had no money. I thought I would take a moment here to talk about our partner, Vestiaire Collective, as it's a space where I look for pieces when my budget doesn't stretch to sustainable luxury. Vestiaire Collective is the leading global app for pre-loved fashion. Discover a more sustainable Christmas this year by embracing secondhand. Right now on Vestiaire Collective, you can find pre-loved outfits that won't cost the earth and will start your festivities in style. Vestiaire Collective are offering slow exposure listeners 25 euros or equivalent in your local currency off your first purchase until the end of January. Use code SLOWEXPOSURE21, all uppercase, and download the app for more details. That's Slow Exposure 21, all uppercase, for 25 euros off your first purchase. I read that you were shocked about the amount of people that weren't invested in sustainability, and that interview was a while back. So I wanted to ask whether that has changed, and I think particularly recently, Greta Thunberg, all of these amazing people doing amazing things. Have you noticed that that change has been reflected in Ravenvert in terms of customers in terms of people coming to you asking questions yeah I mean we're, we're definitely getting bigger and I think that's definitely because of appetite so that's amazing I think I cannot believe it's up to like 15 16 17 year olds to change the outcome of the future do you ever feel conflicted that you're and I have this as well which is why I asked this slightly provocative question conflicted that you are essentially selling more stuff to people yes a hundred percent I mean 
<laughs> you should ask my husband this question because I can't like the other day I was having such a conscious crisis that he was like I mean maybe you should just turn Rev into like an activist platform <laughs> but then again if we stopped consuming completely that also wouldn't be good for social sustainability because I, I mean consumption fuels the economy and if we were to stop consuming full stop I mean livelihoods and money and also we're not going to stop consuming and I've thought about this for six years since I was in my master's degree and I started realizing the footprint of consumption I also really got into a business mindset then because I was looking at these numbers I mean these trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars that consumption was feeding into the global economy and I realized that even if we were to tell everyone to stop buying tomorrow, it just would never, I mean, that it's just too much. It's like trying to stop a tidal wave. You just, you couldn't. If you're going to consume, consume in the best, best, best possible way. And that's what I've tried to do with Revon Vera's curation. But of course, there's a certain amount of hypocrisy in that as well. How do you choose the brands that you want to work with? Remade, organic, local, and fair. Like those are the four words I kind of throw around the most because... If there are materials that are available that are already in a great state to be used, I think they should absolutely be used. I think we should be remaking so much more. I don't actually know if we even should be producing new materials. I, I don't know if organic cotton, I think recycled cotton is a better solution. Um, however, why we have organic in there is because obviously as we've evolved to include beauty and home and baby and all these things, Organic, I will always say, is better than conventional. Then local, I think looking at locality in terms of giving people jobs, cutting down on carbon footprints. I mean, it's just, if we could be making closer to home, I like to think that most of Revon Vera's designers are thinking in a local capacity. And then FAIR, FAIR is just really looking at the social, the humanitarian impacts, who's making it, how it's affecting local communities and economies to where you are producing. There's really no one definition of sustainability. And I can say that with certainty, having gotten a master's degree in it. You know, I was with some of these amazing professors and they were like, God, if we could answer this question holistically in a universal way, we'd be in a much better position, but we're not. So that's what sustainability means to us at Rev. Mm. in a nutshell with each brand obviously they can't fill each criteria because one might be an upcycling yeah, brand so therefore exactly. organic okay a designer like Mara Hoffman is kind of a no-brainer but when you wanted to get her on board what questions were you asking how were you vetting their practice what conversations so were you Mara's having? a really interesting one because when I first met her at a launch party we did in New York City right at that six years ago point she wasn't sustainable she wasn't then. sustainable yeah. You know, I loved the brand and I thought she lived her life in a really kind of sustainable way. And I found it really funny that she, that it wasn't a sustainable brand. But anyway, a couple of years later, she had her son. And this is why I think Mara is such a phenomenal person in fashion, because I think a lot of people say it's going to take time. They set, they set targets 2030 or 2050 or 2025 to achieve things. And, and really, we don't have that amount of time to turn things around. So I think unless you're doing something within the next one, two years, don't even bother fucking saying you're doing it. It doesn't matter. You, you need to turn it around quicker because we have such a short period of time if we want to keep the world the way that we know it, I don't even know if that's really that possible anymore. Um, but anyway, Mara had her son. 
went into the office when she came back from maternity leave and was like, unless we can change this, I'm going to shut the brand down. Unless we can holistically turn Mara Hoffman into a sustainable brand, I'm not doing it anymore. And I have spoken to people that were on her team at that point and asked them about it. And they were like, we stopped doing anything except figuring out how to make the company more sustainable. They were having internal meetings and it changed, I mean, so quickly. And I got an email from her new head of sales. You know, we wanted to reach out to Revon Vert because we just thought that with Mara's new direction, you should know what she's doing. And I was, I couldn't believe that the woman I'd met just a couple years earlier had achieved what she had in that period of time. And so for that story in particular, it's, it's an amazing story. Since then, she's only continued to do more. And she has a big audience. And she has a great, huge audience. And she is constantly pushed. Every time I see her sales rep or talk to them about the new collection, there's, there's new materials they've gone further with. They're, you know, moving away from dyeing certain things. You know, they're, they're, she's constantly questioning. And I think that's what every designer should be doing now. So, yes. Not every designer ticks every box for Revon Vert, but because we're still curated and small and independent, and I intend to always be this way, I don't know if we could ever be as sustainable as we are today if we allowed so many more brands on. How do you combine activism and fashion? I mean, it's difficult. I mean, the problem is it shouldn't be difficult. And I think there's a disservice now because I think a lot of big fashion brands and retailers are kind of... I don't think that if the person that owns a mega company has been committed of sexual offenses or bad behavior, that then that brand should be producing t-shirts say that say I'm a feminist or something do you know what I mean I sorry I'm trying to use a thinly veiled um example but I feel like this is where things are falling down is people want to wear things that make them seem like they're an activist and brands want to jump on that bandwagon because it's slightly trendy now to be political but I think oftentimes you know I was just talking to Catherine Hamnett and I was like, did your slogan tees work? And she's like, no, they fucking didn't mm. because you can't just put on a t-shirt and expect the world to change. And I was slightly naive in thinking that they would. And I loved that. Fascinating. I love that she kind of copped to it. Um, I, I, particularly because she is such a strong voice. Of course. Yeah, exactly. And I have, you know, we've got a slogan to at Rev about single-use plastic. But I, I really think they can be effective if, if you're really living your life to the standard that when somebody asks you about that t-shirt or it does provoke a conversation, you're in a position to really stand up and talk about it. I don't think you should buy a slogan tee if you're not... 100% behind the slogan and I think that it's become very muddied that you could just grab a t-shirt and be like okay doing my bit you know like that's not really enough but if you're wearing a slogan tee and you like 100% are behind what that says amazing but in a way any sort of activism whether it's genuine or uh, not is sort of better than nothing and that is a really good point as well and taking a stance I would always you know, be backing. I just think that maybe in this time, in the state that humanity is in. Authenticity is so important. Authenticity and also people having individual responsibility to maybe go a bit further. Mm. 
push themselves a little bit harder. I think we also have so many distractions. You know, we've got Instagram, we've got reality TV, we've got Netflix series, we've got cheap holidays. We've got, we've got so much that could take priority over the more bum out things in life, but the more bum out things in life don't have to be bum out if you look at them as, as something that could really, really, really give meaning to your existence. Thank you for listening to the Slow Exposure podcast. Remember to tap subscribe, tell your friends, and I always want to hear your thoughts. Thank you to Viv Lavav for the music. I'll see you next time.